Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour Book Club with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. This is our monthly book club where we pick a book and an author that we are loving and bring the author in for a little chat with us. This week we are lucky enough to have Adele Parks from I Invited Her In. Uh, If you haven't read it, it's Domestic Noir, a tale of female friendship. What goes wrong when you like somebody's photo on social media that you maybe shouldn't be liking? And family dynamics. You can get the first chapter of the book on our podcast, so go and have a listen there. And you can also download it or buy it in stores. Now, Adele, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. (laughs) Lovely to be here. (laughs) It's lovely to have you. Uh, So tell us, for anyone who doesn't know who you are and what you write about, tell us a little bit about you as an author. Oh, well, this is my 18th book. Oh, wow. my God. 18 books in 18 years. <laughs> Started when I was five. No, I really didn't. <laughs> Started when I was 30. Um, and, uh, yeah, this one, as you mentioned, it's domestic noir. So I've always written about relationships, not just sort of romantic relationships, but, you know, uh, the relationships we have with our parents, with our friends, with our siblings, with our children. And this time I really wanted to investigate female friendship because I believe... At its best, that's one of the most valuable, intimate relationships we have. It's really sustaining, very, very important. But because we invest so much in our female friendships, if it goes wrong, it's devastating. And I wanted to write, without giving too much away, that's not a spoiler, (laughs) I wanted to write about when it goes wrong. It really goes wrong with Mel and Abby. So Mel, lovely Mel, at home with her family, building this lovely sort of beautiful I mean I don't want to be mean and say suburban but a slightly suburban life so what's wrong with suburban nothing's wrong with suburban I just feel like everyone uses it as an insult <laughs> to be like Ooh. um and Abby off having a glamorous time in the states yeah she comes back and disrupts it yeah that I mean actually it's interesting that that question of what's wrong with suburban and how we feel about that because I on purposely placed Mel in what I would call a very ordinary life because mm. I think the vast majority of us do live ordinary lives and we're grateful for it. Mm -hmm, Being content is actually awesome. Mm -hmm. Striving because you want something can be really good, especially if you achieve it. But striving because you're constantly discontent is a dreadful position Mm -hmm. to be in in life. So I kind of wanted Mel to be in that place. Um, Abby and Mel first meet at university when they're very young and just finding out who they are and what they want out of life. Abby's significantly more 
glam and adventurous. And Mel's just glad to be in that friendship group and, and be part of it. Oh, and then Mel, poor Mel, has to leave university because she falls pregnant after a one-night stand. And she decides that for her, the choice is to go and have that baby and to leave uni. But obviously, huge sacrifice. So when we meet her and she is in this content life, I'm really pleased for her because, you know, she's given a lot up and she's done really well. And she's been this single mum warrior and all these really important things. Abby, who is the more adventurous one, has gone off to America, become um, a TV presenter, uh, works with her husband. Her husband is her boss. And then she catches him having an affair. So is in that very vulnerable position that particularly women can find themselves in where they put all their eggs in one basket, so much as financially and emotionally dependent on one person. And so she's run back to the UK, picked up this friendship with her old mate Mel. And you would think that would be perfect. You know, they're looking after each other, the, the kind of support they're going to give one another. But no. What I found really interesting was depicting of the two lives as they were so different from each other. But there was this sort of real perspective of, is the grass greener? You know, Abby was looking at Mel's life and what she had and vice versa. And that was really interesting to me because as human beings, I feel like we're constantly looking at other people and comparing. Yeah, which is such a waste of time. <laughs> I mean, really, looking back is such a waste of time. There's literally, there's nothing you can do about back. The only reason to look back is to think what did I learn from that so I'm very much a kind of look forward person but I think it is very natural that people sort of always assume somebody else is having it easier mm. and actually the truth of life is and we'd all be much better off if we accepted it <laughs> probably nobody's having it any easier they've just got a different set of problems so Abby's problems are she hasn't had a family and now uh, she's in her, her mid-30s and decides she does want children but she's newly single and has to kind of think about that and She's worrying it's too late. Mel has had children forever. She feels she hasn't had youth um, and she hasn't had the chance to finish her education and her career hasn't quite blossomed to where she wanted it to be. So both women actually believe the other has something that could complete them. You also pick up the fact that lots of us have friendships that are played out on social media. Yes. And so you have a really, really close bond and you're still friends and you know what's going on in each other's lives, but you're not actually there. And so are you really friends is the thing that stays in my mind. Totally. Is that friendship real? Because I think on social media, obviously, we all know this, we only present our best selves. It's very rare that you put, I mean, if I tell you how many photos I take of my feet by accident, because I'm just carrying my camera. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if I just like always uploaded those onto my Instagram going, yeah, there's my thighs, you know, there's my feet again. But you don't, you know, you put the best photo of yourself, you maybe take five before you like the one that you put up. And so if you've got a friend who's only through social media, they're going to think your life is significantly more perfect than it, than it is, which is actually very dangerous. And this does happen with both these women. They've known each other, you know, years and years and years ago when they were quite different people. Mm. And they only see the good in each other's lives. They don't see any pain. They don't see any struggle. So they don't really know each other. And that's what unfolds in the book. It does. <laughs> One of the things I loved about the book was the depictions of different I guess love dynamics within a family relationship so actually how you can have all these different units within one family when I interviewed you before I talked about how much I am personally in love with Ben the husband in the book <laughs> which is then really awkward because Adele said she based it on her husband and I was like well that's just <laughs> awkward now and then and I got you to meet him which is really weird I was like this is Ben Hi. also Jim <laughs> 
not awkward at all. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got Ben and Mel's relationship, you've got Mel and Liam's relationship, you've got them as a whole family unit. What inspired all those different relationships for you? Yeah, I think I should probably clear up because it's not exactly <laughs> like Ben. But um, Ben's very patient in, in the book, and I think that's definitely a, a, a gym thing. And also, Ben is the, the stepfather to Liam. But, and I think we talked about this before, I sort of shy away from... The, the phrase step parent because my gym brought up my son um from him being a baby so he is dad and we don't have you know people talk about blended families and step families and half brothers and half sisters and all those things and actually most families just think of themselves as a family mm -hmm. they don't sit around going well this is my stepbrother or my half brother they just kind of go we're a family mm -hmm. and i wanted to reflect that in the book and i wanted a really positive um, portrayal of a step parent because I think step parenting is so common uh, there's you know 50% of the country end up divorced so therefore I'm assuming lots of them remarry there's lots of different types of families now so let's talk about that and let's show some really positive versions of that because they are out there so yes but of course because there's different dynamics with every relationship you know even if you three are threesome but yeah. you'll all have a different way of, of interacting with each other and that that's absolutely true in a family. So Mel, perhaps with her son Liam, is quite overprotective because she's spent a lot of time on her own with him. Mm -hmm. Whereas Ben comes in and he's a bit of a relief. It's like he's a pressure valve, I think, for both of them. So both of them have kind of this special intimacy with, with Ben. Both Mel does and Liam, the, the son, does. And then they have two more daughters as well. Now, the daughters are quite close in age, so mostly they have each other mm -hmm. and they're quite that little unit. But obviously they relate to their parents and then again their older brother. And so, yeah, and I think that's just very, very normal in families. It's how we all survive. We wouldn't get through it otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think what you, what you said is true. And again, it's a, another reflection of the book replicating what really goes on in society. And that's what makes it a really good read because you can relate to it. So I can relate to the friendship overseas that is only played out on social media. But at one point we thought we'd die if we weren't in each other's lives. And I have lots of half brothers and, and sisters in, I guess, um, tick box term, but we are just family. So everything that you're saying, it, it does, it rings true. Yeah. Oh, well, that's amazing. Because I think people put, other people put barriers mm. up and they, you know, with with Conrad, we definitely, that's my son, we definitely have had people sort of say, you know, they ask very intimate questions about our family unit. And I think, mind your own you know just yeah. back off we're doing fine we're really happy um but i think that again is because people look at each other's lives and start to think and judge and what have you and even if you're the family that's i don't know i don't know what the average is now but if it is two children or whatever even if you're the mum and dad that have those two children there's no divorce and one's a boy one's a girl and you're the salt and pepper set you're still looking over your shoulder and thinking oh what's the family with three like what's the family with one like your domestic noir do you generally look at life and society as you said at the beginning and try and play that out in in your books and is that why you can write a book every year because you are actually taking real life and and giving it more oomph I, I absolutely that i find people fascinating i find life fascinating the the times we live in we're changing very quickly mm -hmm. there's a lot going on there's a lot to be said um, with this book, I on purposely picked particular themes. I mean, we've touched on all of them. I picked on the 
what I call warrior single parenting because mm. I think it's such a tough ride and you know well done to anyone else who's doing it and they never get good press mm. they only ever hear the bad stuff so I wanted to pick that out I wanted to do something about social media um we haven't touched on this one but actually one of the um sort of grains that came to me is I read an article about uh, revenge porn and how destructive that was for one particular woman. But mm. bless her, so brave, decided to take it to the courts and just face it full on and try and have the laws change. This was in America and actually she has had laws change. Amazing woman. So I thought, isn't that interesting that something that starts out with such trust and love can be used for, for revenge and cruelty mm. and that flip of how you feel about someone and I wanted to to net that in as well and pull that into my book as well so I think I had streams that come from yeah real life revenge is a big theme in the book I don't want to give too much away and say huge revenge but there is a lot of revenge going on and it comes from the female characters is it fun to write female characters that go against the oh she's so nice and funny I want her to be my best friend grain it is and it isn't. There's a responsibility to it because um, great fun when I was writing it and I just thought I was writing two women that had that were going through different crises and whenever you go through a crisis, you're not your best self. That's what I thought I was writing. But a lot of the interest in the media has been about, oh, look, female friendships can't work. And that is not what I wanted to say. You know, I absolutely, and I actually, I demonstrate in the book, female friendships absolutely do work. So I feel there's a level of responsibility for me to say, you know, here's an example of it not working. I'm not saying this is female friendship. I'm saying, you know, this is interesting because it's skewed off. It, it, it would be a less interesting book if everything, if it starts happy, middles happy and ends happy. <laughs> less interesting book. Um, but I will deliberately go out my way to write a, a happy friendship next to just balance this. <laughs> Can you also have a character called Natalie? Please. I'll do my best. Yes, Thank Natalie. You. I absolutely do that. <laughs> Note yourself. <laughs> Tell us a bit more about your writing process because you've written 18 books in 18 years. So... You must love writing to be able to do that. I do love it. I mean, it's literally, I'm so lucky because I wanted to be a writer since I was a little girl. And when I was about um, five or six year old, I used to visit my grandparents on a weekend because my uh, mum worked in a factory packing tea bags and um, my dad played golf. I mean, try and put that in a social class somewhere. <laughs> that is so complicated. But anyway, so we went to my grandparents and I think I was quite hard work and um, my sister wasn't. She was adorable, older sister, very quiet and good. And I literally wasn't. So my grandparents, and especially my granddad, encouraged me because he knew I liked writing and comics and reading and all that. And he said, well, you could make a comic. And then as I got a bit older, he said, you could write a book and I'll pay you. And he used to pay me 50p to, at the end of the weekend, which was a lot of money back then, 50p for writing this book. And I just thought, oh, you know, there's obviously money in it. No, um, I thought, this is amazing. I love it. And my sister, it took me years to work out. She got the 50p for doing literally nothing, for just sitting and behaving well and watching like Laura Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie. Um, but it kept me quiet. But actually, I did love this thing that I was producing a story and I was giving it to someone else. And whether he was faking it or whether he was genuinely entertained, um, my granddad, you know, did gave me the right response. So all my life, I read, 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 read and wrote. But I came from a family that had literally... Nobody, I mean, we lived in the northeast of England. We didn't know anyone in media. We didn't know anybody in publishing. I had no clue how to go about it. And so when I graduated, I went to Italy 
with the like this idea going, well, it worked for Ian Foster. I mean, fine, something will happen. I'll come back and write about it. Fine. Uh, literally, nothing happened other than me eating lots of pizza and doubling my body weight, which was great, but didn't help the book. So I came back and started working in advertising, but I found I was still always writing. And then eventually I thought, you know what, you've got to stop talking about this and you've got to do it. And even while I had a day ba- uh, job, I wrote the first novel and then just um, took it to unsolicited manuscript, which you could in those days, to, to an agent who took me on, which was absolutely amazing. Couldn't believe it. But I think the thing I learned from that is I need to write daily. And it was just lovely for me. It was the best thing I could do. It was good for my mental health, good for me to sort anything out that was worrying me. And the reason I actually finally wrote the book that I kept talking about is we'd actually had a number of deaths in our family. And I think I, and some of them were people that were significantly older and some of them were younger. And so it made me have that moment of thinking, you don't know how long you've got. Stop talking about something you're going to do. Just live this one life you've got. And I think since I got my contract, and I've been under contract for the 18 years, I just felt that was a joy and that's a dream come true. So why wouldn't I want to write every day? In fact, when I'm promoing and I'm not writing, I get agitated like somebody who needs to go to the gym. I am not the person who needs to go to the gym, but I am the person who needs to write every day. And you must have a really great process now if you've done 18 books. So, you know, tell us a bit about how it starts. Where do you get your inspiration from a story? Does it evolve as you write it or are you very clear about you know, what the start, middle and end is going to be. You, one of the right, sort of writers, you wake up at four in the morning and lock yourself away for half half a day. No, well, maybe I, I should. Um, <laughs> so my, I get my ideas usually from a little throwaway comment. It's usually a little just single comment. You think, oh, that's interesting. Those people are at that life stage. Because obviously you're only ever at one life stage. So you've constantly, as a writer, constantly got to keep your ears and eyes open and find out what everyone else is going on. So um might be something you read in a newspaper or listen to on the radio, or it might be something that a, f- a friend tells you, just as an offhand comment, you know. And then you have to sort of think, right, so there's the idea, what's the dilemma? Who's the character this could ha- happen to? And I think I spend a couple of months before I even put pen to paper, absolutely interviewing my characters, knowing them inside out, knowing where this plot's going to go. So yes, I do know where I'm going to end up. I don't know the middle bit, Mm. but I know where I'm starting and I know where I'm going to end up. And I leave the middle bit a little bit looser, so I have a bit of fun when I'm writing it. And then for in terms of hours, I do sort of 8.30 till 3.30, which coincides with uh, having a child. Um, (laughs) Because my kid's now, well, he's nearly 18. So actually, I've written a book a year since he was born. And that's that is part of the process that I've always written around his childcare. So I think that's also helped me be disciplined because when he was very little, I would write when he was asleep. And then when he had three hours of nursery in the morning, I would write for three hours in the morning and then when he was asleep. And so I haven't ever allowed myself the luxury of, oh, I'll see when the muse will come. Mm. The muse is another working mum. She knows exactly when to come. <laughs> um, so, you know, I'm, I'm quite structured that way. Um, I don't now write during weekends. I used to, but now I invariably give myself weekends off. And then maybe in the afternoon or whatever, half three, I will go on social media and keep in touch with my readers, mm. that sort of thing, keep in touch with other markets. And what advice would you give to somebody who wants to be an author? To read a lot. I know that sounds 
so bizarre, but you can't be a chef unless you eat. Mm -hmm. You just need to know what you're doing. And I have met um, people, I, re I remember meeting this chap once, he was at, I sometimes do uh, workshops and masterclasses and things on writing. He said, I've got this amazing idea. So I'm going to write Ladlit. You know, there's this genre, Dale, <laughs> ch Chitlit. I'm going to write Ladlit. And I was like, oh, what, like, so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And he said, well, it's been done. I was like, what do you read? He said, oh, I don't read. Oh, right. And then I said, why are you writing? And he said, oh, it's just, you know, people make a lot of money. And I was like, okay, you really need to read. <laughs> you know, um, you need to get some facts. Um, so, yes, I, that was an extreme version. Mm -hmm. But I also do know people that as soon as they start writing their book, they give up reading. And it's a shame because reading hones your skill. Um, I think my read, sorry, my writing went up a gear the year I judged the Costa Awards because mm -hmm. I read 60 novels in something like three months. Wow. And I genuinely think um, my abilities changed then. Mm -hmm. So I'm very grateful. That was a nice moment. Don't want to do it again. Thanks very much. <laughs> Took a lot of time. <laughs> so I think that's important. And then the other one is the flip. You must just literally write. Literally every day, even if it's 20 minutes, carve out that time. Take it seriously. You know, if that means clothes go unironed, if that means a, a floor goes unwashed, if that means you don't, I don't know, cook a meal and you have a ready meal, do it because you've got to find those 20 minutes a day. And then you'll find your 20 minutes just turn into an hour, two hours, and you don't care. You just want to write. Or that's at least what happened to me. So going full circle back to the idea of contentment, are you content or is there something else that you want to achieve with your writing? Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> it's all going really well. No, I always want to write a new book. I think I pride myself on that, which makes life really hard in some ways because I never want to be the person where somebody reads and goes, yeah, I know how this is going to end. I know what she does. Mm. So I try really hard to come up with something different each time. So I have just delivered next year's book. Hurrah! Well done. But I'm already looking at 2020's book. Mm -hmm. So I'm at the moment feeling a little bit less content than normal <laughs> because I'm definitely on that lookout stage. Mm -hmm. So the energy's a bit higher. I'm wanting to know what's going on. I'm thinking about how that plot could work. Um, but generally speaking, I think I am a very content person and... Long may that continue. <laughs> I would touch wood at this point, but there's none in, there's none in the studio. <laughs> but would you like to see your books turned into movies? Uh, well, actually, two of them are um, currently optioned. And, and you see, look how relaxed I am. I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah that's happening. Yeah. But I think one of them I'm not involved at all. The woman who's producing it wants a different writer, and she made that really clear from the beginning. But she's fab, and she'll ring me and tell me who she's talking to. And I'm just like, yeah, that's great, good enjoy it because it's a little bit like if you sell your house and they redecorate you can't complain <laughs> then another one the producer really does want me involved and we talk constantly and um, we share ideas and I'm working with another writer and I love his ideas too and I'm just absolutely going with the flow but I because I have been doing this 18 years I am sensibly enough to know we could be having another conversation in 10 years and these two books still could be in development <laughs> or they might be, you know, worldwide networked all over the place <laughs> because that's the thing with my job. You never know. So I think you just enjoy the ride without absolutely pinning, like, I want this next because the only thing I ever really, really wanted was to be a writer. I remember standing in bookshops and crying and one of my friends said to me, who I was, rewind that story. So in the days when there was no mobiles, 
if you said you were meeting a friend you met in a bookshop because yes. then yes. you couldn't kill time yes. if you were the friend was late and the tubes yeah. were playing up or whatever yeah. so this friend grant he arrived and i was literally crying my eyes out and he's like what's the matter i was like look at all these books being published I was like, right? I'm like, well, look at the wires of mine being published. And he said, well, maybe because you've never shown anyone. I was like, I, oh. good point. <laughs> yeah. And so I do believe that if you want something enough, that will happen. If, you know, if you keep trying and you're very lucky and you've got that skill and what have you, then that can happen. And that's what I wanted. So a little bit of me feels anything else would be a bit greedy. Anything else that comes along is great, but I don't need more. I've been I've been lucky enough to achieve what I set out to achieve and and to keep having that. Um I'd be really disappointed if someone said you suddenly or oh, you can't write another book, you know, that stopped. Um but that doesn't look as though it's going to happen. Well, can we help you with your 2020 book? I'm going to start and then everyone builds on it, okay? <laughs> yes. So it was a bright early morning in London and Nath. three Natalie, uh one of uh three badass women. <laughs> started her day with an interview and after the interview she took Harriet to the side and said write your book already yay Emma continue the story uh, and they lived happily ever after she became a bestseller <laughs> and oh, they lived happily ever after better, yes. that's it yeah. okay. you guys aren't good storytellers first thing in the morning <laughs> they haven't had coffee yet <laughs> it's been so lovely chatting to you before you go uh we have to ask you who is your badass heroine did you oh. admire oh do you know i love i so unoriginal but audrey hepburn because not only was she beautiful and all that but first of all she'd had a really tough childhood and yet she went off and was beautiful and all the rest of it but let's face it we now know enough about the industry that would have been a horrendous sexist her mm. horrific industry at the time but she kept it together. She ha was a single mom on two occasions and then kept remarrying. She did not give up on that happiness dream. <laughs> but then what she went on to do with UNICEF, you know, she never gave up giving. I remember really, really loving her when I was young and watching My Fair Lady perhaps on loop when I was about seven or eight. And when I got to university, being really surprised that other people knew of her. Which, you know, let's face it, she's an international star. And I was like, really? You know of her too? I thought I discovered her. Um, so, yeah, I think she's a bit of a badass. And I think the patriarch would have us believe that she's just this sort of stick-thin, willowy, uh, nice, pretty woman. And I think there was so much more grit and strength to her than than people ever talk about. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Adele Parks, author of I Invited Her In. It is out now. Go buy it. We loved it. Thank you so much for coming in and being part of the Badass Women's Hour book club. Thank you. One, two, three, four. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Chapter 1. Melanie. Monday, 19th of February. While the girls are cleaning their teeth, I start to stack the dishwasher. It's too full to take the breakfast pots. I should have put it on last night. There's nothing I can do about this now. So I finish making up their packed lunches and then have a quick glance at my phone. I'm expecting an email from my area manager about the results of some interviews we held last week. I work in a high street fashion retailer that everyone knows. There's one in every town. Our branch needs another sales assistant and, as assistant manager, I was asked to sit in on the interviews. Dozens of people applied. We interviewed six. I have a favourite and I'm crossing my fingers she'll be selected. Unfortunately, I don't get to make the final decision. I skim through the endless offers to invest in counterintuitive home protection units or pills that promise me thicker and fuller hair or a thicker and fuller penis and look for my boss's name. Suddenly, I spot another name. Abigail Curtis. And I'm stopped in my tracks. It jumps right out at me. Abigail Curtis. My first thought is that it is most likely to be a clever way of spreading a virus. The name is a coincidence. One just plucked out of the air by whoever it is who is mindless enough and yet clever enough to go to the effort of sending spam emails to infect other people's gadgets. But Curtis with a Z? I hesitate before opening it as it's probably just trouble. However, the email is entitled It's Been Too Long, which sounds real enough, feasible. It has been a long time. I can't resist. I open it, my heart thumping. Normally, I skim-read everything. I have three kids and a job. My default setting is hurried. But this email, I read carefully. No! I gasp out loud. Bad news? Asks Ben, with concern. He's moving around the kitchen, looking for something. His phone, probably. He's always mislaying that and his car keys. Uh, no, it's not. Not exactly. I've just got an email from an old friend of mine. She's getting divorced. Well, that's sad. Who? Abigail Curtis. Uh, Abby. Her name seems strange on my lips. I used to say it so often with such pleasure, and then I stopped doing so. Stopped talking to her, stopped thinking about her. I had to. Ben looks quizzical. He's one of those good husbands who tries to keep up when I talk about my friends, but he doesn't recall me mentioning an Abigail. That's not a surprise. I never have. We were at uni together, I explain carefully. Oh, really? 
He reaches for the plate of now cold toast in the middle of the kitchen table and snatches up a piece. He takes a bite, and while still chewing, he kisses me on the forehead. Right, well, you can tell me about her later, yeah? He's almost out of the door. He calls up the stairs. Liam, if you want to lift to the bus stop, you need to be downstairs five minutes ago. I smile, amused at his half-hearted effort at sounding like a ruthless disciplinarian, hell-bent on timekeeping. He blows the facade completely when he comes back into the kitchen and asks, Liam has had breakfast, right? I don't like him going out on an empty stomach. I'll wait if needs be. We listen for the slow clap of footsteps on the stairs and Liam lumbers into the kitchen right on cue. He grew taller than me four years ago, when he was just 13, so it shouldn't be a surprise that he now towers above me, but it absolutely is. Every time I see him, I am freshly startled by the mass of him. He's broad, makes an effort to go to the gym and bulk out. He's bigger than most boys his age. I wonder where my little boy went. Is he still buried somewhere within? Liam is taller than Ben now, too. Imogen, who is eight, and Lily, just six, are still wisps. They still scamper, hop and float. When either of them jumps onto my knee, I barely register it. I have to stretch up now to steal a hug from Liam. I also have to judge when doing so is appropriate and acceptable. I try to get it right because it's too painful to see him dodge my affection, which he sometimes does. He's outgrown me. I must respect his boundaries and his privacy. I'm ever mindful of it, but I can't help but miss the little boy I could smother with kisses whenever the desire struck me. Now I wait for Liam's rare but generous hugs mostly contenting myself with high fives. Today he looks tired. I imagine he stayed up later than sensible last night watching YouTube videos or playing games. When he's docile, he's often more open to care and attention. I take advantage, ruffle his hair, even peck him on the cheek. He picks up two slices of toast from the playtime proffering, shoving one into his mouth almost in its entirety, unconcerned that it's cold. He takes a moment to slather the second slice with jam. He's always had a sweet tooth. Thanks, Mum. <clears throat> You're the best. I don't spoil the moment by telling him not to speak with his mouth full. There really are only so many times you can remind someone of this. He turns to his dad and playfully asks, What are you waiting for? I'm ready. They're out the door and in the car before I can ask if he has his football kit. Whether he's getting himself home from training this evening or hoping for a lift, whether he has money for the vending machine, it's probably a good thing. Me fussing that way really irritates him. I usually try to limit myself to just one of those sorts of questions per morning. The girls, however, are still young enough to need, expect and even accept a barrage of chivying reminders. I check the kitchen clock and I'm surprised time has got away. I gulp down my tea and then shout up the stairs. Girls, I need you down here pronto! As usual, Imogen responds immediately. I hear her frantic footsteps scampering above. She starts to yell. Where is my hairbrush? Have you seen my flower fairy pencil case? Who moved my reading book? I left it here last night. She takes school very seriously and can't stand the idea of being late. Lily is harder to impregnate with any sense of urgency. 
she has picked up some of the vocabulary that Liam and his friends use. Luckily, nothing terrible yet, but she often tells her older siblings to chill, and she is indeed the embodiment of this verb. I drop the girls off at school with three minutes to spare before the bell is due to ring. I see this as a bonus, but honestly, if they're a few minutes late, I don't sweat it. I only make an effort with timekeeping because I know Imogen gets stressed and bossy otherwise. I'm aware that it's our duty as parents to instil into our children a sense of responsibility and an awareness of the value of other people's time. But really, would the world shudder if they missed the start of assembly? I wasn't always this relaxed. With Liam, I was a fascist about timekeeping. About that and so much more. I liked him to finish everything on his plate. I was fanatical about him saying please and thank you and sending notes when he received gifts. Well, not notes as such, because I'm talking about a time before he could write. I got him to draw thank you pictures. His shoes always shone, his hair was combed. He had the absolutely correct kit and equipment. I didn't want him to be judged and found lacking. It's different when you're a single mum, which I was with Liam. I met Ben when Liam was almost six. Being married to Ben gives me a confidence that allows me to believe I can be two minutes late for school drop-off and no one will tut or roll their eyes. I didn't have the same luxury when Liam was small. Suddenly, I think about Abigail Curtis's email, and I'm awash with conflicting emotions. There are lots of things that are tough about being a single parent. The emotional, physical and financial strain of being entirely responsible for absolutely everything, around the clock, a relentless 24-7, takes its toll. And the loneliness? The brutal, crushing, insistent loneliness. Well, that's a horror. As is the bone-weary, mind-wiping, unremitting exhaustion. Sometimes my arms ached with holding him on my back or legs. Sometimes I was so tired I wasn't sure where I was aching. I just felt pain. But there were moments of reprieve when I didn't feel judged or lonely or responsible. There were moments of kindness, and those moments are unimaginably important and utterly unforgettable. They're imprinted on my brain and heart, every one of them. Abigail Curtis owns one such moment. When I told Abby that I was pregnant, she was obviously all wide eyes and concerned, shocked. Yes, I admit she was bubbling a bit, with the drama of it all. That was not her fault. We were only 19, and I didn't know how to react appropriately, so how could I expect her to know? We were both a little giddy. How far on are you? she asked. I think about two months. I later discovered at that point I was officially ten weeks pregnant because of the whole calculate from the day you started your last period thing. But that catch-all calculation never really washed with me because I knew the exact date I'd conceived. Wednesday, the first week of the first term, my second year at university. Stupidly, I'd had unprotected sex right slap bang in the middle of my cycle. That, combined with my youth, meant that one transgression was enough. And even now, a lifetime on, I feel the need to say it wasn't like I made a habit out of doing that sort of thing. In all my days, I've had irresponsible, unprotected sex precisely once. Then there's still time you could abort. 
Abigail had said simply. She did not shy away from the word. We were young. The power, vulnerability and complexity of our sexuality was embryonic, but our feminist rights were forefront of our minds. My body, my choice, my right. A young, independent woman. I didn't have to be saddled with the lifetime consequences of one night's mistake. There had been a girl on my course who'd had a scare in the first year. I'd been verbose about her right to choose, and I'd been clear that I thought she should terminate the pregnancy rather than her education. The girl in question had agreed. So had Abby, and pretty much everyone who knew of the matter. She hadn't been pregnant, though. So? Well, you know, talk is cheap, isn't it? She's the chief financial officer of one of the biggest international, fast-moving consumer goods corporations now. I saw her pop up on Facebook a couple of years ago. CFO of an FMCG. I googled the acronyms. She accepted my friend request, which was nice of her, but she rarely posts. Too busy, I suppose. Anyway, I digress. I remember looking Abby in the eye and saying, No... Now I can't abort. You're going ahead with it? Her eyes were big and unblinking. Yes. It was the only thing I was certain of. I already loved the baby. It had taken me by surprise, but it was a fact. And will you put it up for adoption or keep it? I'm keeping my baby. We both sort of had to suppress a shocked snigger at that because it was impossible not to think of Madonna. That song came out when I was about five years old, but it was iconic enough to be something that was sung in innocence throughout our childhoods. The tune hung incongruously in the air. It wasn't until a couple of years later that the irony hit me. An anthem of my youth basically heralded the end to exactly that. OK, then, she said. You're keeping your baby. Abigail instantly accepted my decision to have my baby, and that was a kindness. An unimaginably important and utterly unforgettable kindness. She didn't argue that there were easier ways, that I had choices, the way many of my other friends subsequently did. Nor did she suggest that I might be lucky and lose it, the way a guy in my tutorial later darkly muttered. I know he behaved like an asshole because before I'd got pregnant, he'd once clumsily come on to me one night in the student bar. I was having none of it. I guess he had mixed feelings about me being knocked up, torn between, huh, serves the bitch right, and, so she does put out, why not with me? I tell you, there's a lot of press about the wrath of a woman scorned, but men can be pretty vengeful too. Anyway, back to Abby. She did not fume that I was being romantic and short-sighted, the way my very frustrated tutor did when I finally fessed up to her, and nor did she cry for a month the way my mother did, which was, you know, awful. She made us both a cup of tea, even went back to her room to dig out a packet of hobnobs kept for special occasions only. I was on my third hobnob, already eating for two, before she asked, "'Who is the dad?' which was awkward. I'd rather not say. I mumbled. That ugly, is he? She commented with a smile. Again, I wanted to chortle. I knew it was inappropriate. I mean, I was pregnant. But at the same time, I was 19. 
and Abby was funny. I didn't even know that you were having sex with anyone, she added. I didn't feel the need to put out a public announcement. Abigail then burst into peals of girlish, hysterical giggling. The thing is, you've done exactly that. Oh, I suppose I have. I gave in to a full-on cackle. It was probably the hormones. It's like soon you are going to be carrying a great big placard saying, I'm sexually active <laughs> and careless, I added. We couldn't get our breath now, we were laughing so hard. <laughs> Plus, a bit of a slag, because you're not sure who the daddy is. <laughs> I playfully punched her in the arm. I do know! Of course you do, but if you don't tell people who he is, that's what they're going to say. She didn't say it meanly, it was just an observation. <laughs> or even if I tell them who the father is, they'll call me a slag anyway. Suddenly, it was like this was the funniest thing ever. We were bent double laughing, which was odd since I'd spent most of my teens carefully walking the misogynistic tightrope, avoiding being labelled a slag or frigid, and I'd actually been doing quite a good job of balancing. Until then. It really wasn't very funny. The laughter was down to panic, probably. The bedrooms in our student flat were tiny. When chatting, we habitually sat on the skinny single beds because the only alternative was a hard-back chair that was closely associated with late-night cramming at the desk. The room that was supposed to be a sitting room had been converted into another bedroom so that we could split the rent between six rather than five. We collapsed back onto the bed, lying flat now to stretch our stomachs that were cramped with hilarity and full of biscuits, and in my case, baby. I looked at my best friend and felt pure love. We were in our second year at uni. It felt like we'd known one another a lifetime. Uni friendships are more intense than any other. You live, study and party together, without the omniscient, omnipresent parental influence. Uni friends are sort of friends and family rolled into one. Abby and I met in the student union bar the very first night at Birmingham University. Although I would not describe myself as the life and soul of the party, I wasn't a particularly shy type either. I'd already managed to strike up a conversation with a couple of geology students, and while it wasn't the most riveting dialogue ever, I was getting by. Then Abigail walked up to me, out of nowhere, tall, very slim, the sort of attractive that girls and guardian-reading boys appreciate. She had dark, chin-length, sleek, bobbed hair with a heavy, confident fringe. She was all angles like a desk lamp, and it seemed remarkable that she was poised to shine her spotlight on me. She shot out her hand in an assured and unfamiliar way, waited for me to take it and shake it. In my experience, no one shook hands except maybe men in business suits on the TV. My dad was a teacher. He sometimes wore a suit, but mostly he preferred chinos and a corduroy jacket. I suppose he must have occasionally shaken the hands of his pupils' parents, but I'd never seen anyone my age shake anyone else's hand. Her gesture exuded a high level of jaunty individuality and somehow flagged a quirky, no-nonsense approach to being alive. Her eyes were almost black, unusual and striking. Hi, I'm Abigail Curtis with a Z. Business management. Three Bs. You? 
I appreciated her directness. It was a fact that most of the conversations I'd had up until that point hadn't stumbled far past the obligatory exchange of this precise information. Melanie Field, Economics and Business Management Combined. AAB. Oh, clever clogs. Two degrees in one. I wouldn't say... She cut me off. That means you're literally twice as clever as I am. If she believed this to be true, it didn't seem to bother her. She took a sip from her wine glass, winced at it. Or half as focused, I said. I thought a self-deprecating quip was obligatory. Where I came from, no one liked to show off. Being too big for your boots was frowned upon. Getting above yourself was a hanging offence. Abby pulled a funny face that said she didn't believe me for a moment. More that she was a bit irritated that I tried to be overly modest. Okay, that's the bullshit out of the way, she said with a jaded sigh. She didn't even bother to introduce herself to the geology students. I glanced at them apologetically as she scoured the bar. Who do you fancy? she demanded. Him, I replied with a grin, pointing to a hot, hip-looking guy. Come on then, let's go and talk to him. Just like that? I know my face showed my astonishment. Yes, I promise you he'll be more than grateful. She made me laugh, all the time. Her direct irreverent tone never faltered, never flattened. Not that evening or for the rest of the year. We did talk to the hot hip guy. Nothing came of it. I didn't really want or expect it to, but it was fun. We spoke to him and maybe ten other people. It quickly became apparent that Abigail oozed cool self-belief. She thought the world was hers for the taking. And it was a fair assessment. She was charming and challenging, full of bonhomie and the sort of confidence that is doled out in private school assemblies. The best bit was she seemed happy for me to hitch along for the ride. It was Abby who persuaded me to join the debating society, and she was the one who insisted we went to the clubs in town, rather than just limit ourselves to the parties that bloomed in the university common rooms. She did all the student things, like three-legged pub crawls and endless themed parties, but she also insisted we did surprising stuff, like visit the city's museums and art galleries. Some people whispered that she was pretentious. They resented the fact that she only enjoyed listening to music on vinyl and was fussy about the strength of coffee beans. She refused to drink beer, sticking exclusively to French red wine. She rarely ate. She was by far the most interesting person I'd ever met. We became close. She wasn't my only friend, or even my best friend, but she was my favourite. I sometimes found it a bit exhausting to keep up with her, and while she signed up for the university's dramatic society, I was content to sit in the audience and watch her play a shudderingly shocking Lady Macbeth. I joined her on the coach to London and protested outside Parliament over something or other. I forget what now. She waved her placard all day, whereas around noon, I slipped off to Oxford Street for a quick look around Topshop. She was the first person I told about my pregnancy. By the time we'd munched our way through almost the entire packet of hobnobs, Abby commented. Bizarre to think there's an actual baby in there. She was staring at my still reasonably flat stomach. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get so fat. 
I said, laughingly. Weirdly, this seemed a matter of mirth. Yeah, you are, <laughs> she asserted, sniggering too. And no one is ever going to want to marry me. <laughs> Suddenly, I wasn't laughing anymore. I was, to my horror and shame, crying. The tears came in huge, uncontrollable waves. I gulped and gasped for air in pretty much the same way I had when I'd been laughing. So it took Abigail a moment to notice. Oh no, don't cry, she said, pulling me into a tight hug. She smoothed my hair and kissed the top of my head, the way a mother might comfort a child that had fallen over. Abigail was beautiful and sensuous. Everyone wanted to touch her all the time, but she generally chose when any contact would happen. <sighs> Who will want to marry me when I have a kid trailing around after me? I hadn't actually given much thought to marriage up to that point in my life. I wasn't one of those who'd forever dreamed about a long white dress and church bells, but I'd sort of assumed it would happen at some stage in the future. It frightened me that the undesignated point seemed considerably more distant and blurry now that I was pregnant. You'll still get the fairy tale, Abby said with her usual cool confidence. I mean, Snow White had seven little fellas hanging off her apron. She still netted a prince. This caused another round of near-hysterical laughter. I laughed so hard that snot came out of my nose. It was embarrassing at the time. A few months on, I became much more blasé about wayward bodily fluids. She hugged me a little tighter. They will call you a slag, but it will be okay, she assured me. Will it? Yeah, it really will, she said cheerfully. I felt a wave of something like love for Abby at that moment. I loved her, and I believed her. That feeling has never completely gone away. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.